This week, traces of beeswax in ancient pots reveal our ancestors had a taste for honey. By finding those beeswax biomarkers, we could actually map trends in uh, bee product use in, uh, in prehistory. And porous solids are well known. But could a liquid ever be porous? It's easy to imagine how you make a space in a structure when you have rigid components to build your structure with. If you take an ordinary liquid, that's a very different sort of a material. Plus, storms on Twitter over sexism in science. This is the Nature Podcast for November the 11th, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Some things in science sound like contradictions. There are particles with no mass. Inflammable still means flammable. Oh yeah, you don't want to make that mistake. Well, how about this new one? Porous liquids. We usually think of porous things as solids. They act a bit like sponges, which have spaces in them for other substances to be absorbed. In porous solids, tiny holes exist between molecules that don't move. That's what makes solids solid. But liquids... Their molecules are moving around, bumping into each other, not leaving any space for anything else to live there. Surely they can't be porous. Well, Stuart James disagrees, because he and his team at Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland have just made a porous liquid. It could find uses in industry, where porous solids are already used to trap gases or do chemical reactions. But solids aren't as practical as liquids, which can run through pipes and make processes more efficient. When I spoke to Stuart, we started with a recap on what porous materials look like at the chemical level. So you can think of it as being a very small sort of analogue of a, a house, I suppose, in a sense, where a house you know, has a roof and it has walls and it has a floor and that defines the room. And so you can think of that room as being a pore, if you like, in the house. Try to shrink that down in your imagination, down to sort of molecule size, so you shrink it down by a factor of a billion or so. And imagine just tiny, tiny holes like that uh, constructed uh, within the solid framework of the material. So the walls now are themselves you know, atoms and molecules, and that leaves a tiny space, just the right shape and size, for another molecule to go in. So I can imagine a house very easily, and of course houses are built of reasonably solid materials in most cases, unless you live in a tent. So now, how would you make something porous that is not solid that is perhaps liquid yeah well this is the key thing and this is the the sort of very counterintuitive thing about what we've done is that it's easy to imagine how you make a hole a space in a structure when you have rigid components to build your structure with uh, and when they stay still Um, if you take an ordinary liquid like a glass of water that's a very different sort of a material in there the building blocks the molecules if you like are all moving more or less randomly all the time, but essentially staying quite close to each other. So that there are very occasionally little gaps in between the molecules. They just open up randomly from time to time, but um, they don't last very long and they're not very well-defined. They don't have proper sort of well-defined shapes, if you know what I mean. But if you could make them well-defined, you could turn them into these little cages which could hold things, could be porous. It's very challenging to try and think, how do, you, how do you stop the molecules from continually just sort of moving around and where they want to go and bumping into each other? How do you persuade them to open up a little space and not to go into that space? And that, I think, is very, very difficult. So essentially what we did was we cheated. And we designed our liquid thinking about the shapes of the molecules. And we thought, OK, 
What we need to do is make a space inside the molecules. So we had to do quite a lot of tricky chemistry to build uh, a sort of a cage structure. And so that cage individually defines a pore. It has a space inside it. Then what we had to do was to try and get that cage to be a liquid. And we did that by dissolving it in other molecules, but the molecules were too large to fit through the bars of the cage. So now what we have is uh, a solution. We have a solvent and something dissolved in it. The cage is dissolved into the solvent and it's moving around randomly. It's continually bumping into the other molecules, but they can't get inside the cage. And so that is our porous liquid. Nice. You've moved the space from the outside where you didn't have any space because they're all bumping into each other. You've just moved it simply inside the molecule. Absolutely, that's it. So you've got your cages sort of floating about in a liquid. Did you have to make this stuff out of very special materials to get it to work? No, nothing particularly special. I mean, the, 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 the sort of building blocks that we use are very straightforward organic chemistry, I suppose. Carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen. And why are these things potentially useful? Actually, the idea for porous liquids came from a conversation with a chemical engineer here at Queen's. And he just stops me in the corridor one day because uh, I'm a chemist, I'm not a chemical engineer, but he had an engineering problem. And he said, porous solids, very interesting, very useful, but the problem is you can't pump them through pipes. And, and um, because porous liquids are basically not known, or weren't known at that time, that was where the, idea, the, the sort of exciting idea came from, to say, well, actually, could we design a liquid such that it would have these permanent pores inside it? And then into this liquid you could dissolve, you could use it for things that people now use porous solids for, like, for example, capturing CO2. Yes, ultimately. I mean, that would be the dream. You know, that's a, I mean, that, that, that uh, without doubt, is going to be a few years in the future, but it's nice to have a long-term goal to, to go towards. What does your porous liquid hold at the moment? We've looked at methane, which is the main component of natural gas, and what we found was that our porous liquid could dissolve about eight times as much methane as a control material could. Finally, Stuart, your friend who you bumped into in the corridor, who in frustration suggested that you try and make these things, uh, is he aware of your work? How does he feel about it? Oh, yes, no, he's very aware. We talk about it all the time. This is, I should say, he's Professor David Rooney. Once we've got a few kilos or a few tonnes of these things, we'll be talking to him again. <laughs> How much do you have at the moment? A Coke bottle full? A thimble? Oh, less, even less than that, I'm afraid. I mean, I think you're talking about sort of, you know, a few millilitres, perhaps 10 millilitres or something like that. That was Stuart James of Queen's University in Belfast. There's a News and Views article to accompany his paper, and both can be found at nature.com nature. Coming up, adding a new delicacy to the Neolithic diet, and, in the research highlights, Mars's meagre atmosphere and popping balloons. Earlier this year, Fiona Ingleby, who's a social scientist at Sussex University, had a paper rejected from the journal PLOS One. Not exactly big news by itself, this happens to researchers all the time, but the comments from one of the reviewers surprised Fiona. He suggested that it would probably also be beneficial to find one or two male biologists to work with. And that it might well be that on average men publish in better journals due to marginally better health and stamina. All this in the peer reviewer's official comments to the journal. Subsequently, the paper was rejected. Fiona was exasperated. She appealed the decision and then did something she hadn't really done much before. She took to Twitter. 
Shocking reviewer comments received for our manuscript on gender differences in PhD postdoc transition. Journal has been given three weeks so far to respond to our appeal. If there was ever an argument for double-blind peer review... She expected some conciliatory messages from colleagues. Instead, her original messages got retweeted over 5,000 times and the incident got coverage from major news outlets. Fiona's run-in with PLOS One wasn't the only story of sexism in science that broke last year. Lauren Morello, an editor at Nature, helps manage the Nature News social media account and has written a feature on the effects of Twitter storms over sexism in science. She joins me now on the line from DC. Lauren, what inspired you to write this feature? This year, there just seemed to be a spate of these Twitter storms where scientists had these really short-lived, intense discussions on various issues of sexism. This kind of social media storm is a phenomenon. It's an emerging phenomenon, and nobody really knows what it means yet or whether it's going to produce lasting change, but it's clear that you can't really ignore it. Female scientists, I'm sure, have been having negative experiences around sexism for a long time. Is there any evidence that by talking about these experiences on Twitter, they're able to have conversations they weren't able to have before? I don't know if it's that they're having conversations that they weren't having before. I think Twitter allows them to have these conversations in a way that's visible, things that um, you might have talked about with your colleagues over coffee, you're talking about in, in public. And so people that you don't know can enter the conversation. And one side effect of this that um, both people who study social media and people who are participating in these conversations just as individuals told me is that it seems to be creating connections across fields. If you're an ecologist, you might not know any astronomers, but through these conversations on Twitter, ecologists and astronomers and physicists and you know chemists are talking to each other and finding a sense of solidarity, I think. And what do we know about how this helps people to deal with the sexism they encounter, both in terms of the emotional difficulty of dealing with it and the practicalities around it? The research is really preliminary, but folks looking at various hashtags say that when you tweet about sexism, what happens is that you feel like you are making a difference, that your voice is heard, and that it, um, it increases your sense of well-being. This is all classified as expressive writing, and uh, most of the time it makes you feel like you're, you're accomplishing something, so you feel better. Well, hold that thought, Lauren, because we should say that in Fiona Ingleby's case, taking to Twitter did actually accomplish something. Fiona's tweets not only got wide coverage, but PLOS even made a public apology. They replied to Fiona's tweet on the same day she posted it, saying, PLOS regrets the tone, content and spirit of this review. Your appeal is in process and we're reviewing the matter. Fiona's paper is now being re-reviewed and the reviewer and editor that originally handled the manuscript have been let go from PLOS One. Lauren, back to you for a final thought. This is clearly a very positive case of the impact of social media, but when I tend to think of conversations on the internet, things can often turn quite ugly. Presumably not all experiences of discussing sexism in science are positive. Uh, I think that's that's absolutely true. Um, in the study, we mentioned uh, a report by the Pew Center here in Washington, D.C., a think tank that looked at internet harassment just generally. Um, 
And what they found is that men are slightly more likely to be harassed on the internet, but when they're harassed, they get called names or made fun of, and women are more likely to be stalked or sexually harassed based on their online activity. So it's pretty dangerous out there sometimes to be a woman. Uh, for example, there's there's one um, Twitter storm we talk about in the story where a male scientist with the uh, European Space Agency's Rosetta Project wore a shirt with scantily clad women to a big public media event where there are lots of journalists and lots of cameras and lots of public attention. It's when they landed the uh, Philae spacecraft on a comet last year. And so people on Twitter saw the shirt and kind of pointed it out and said, that's sexist. Why would you wear this to an event like this? You're going to make women and girls feel like they're not welcome in planetary science or science generally. Some of these women started getting real blowback, death threats, rape threats, stuff that seems really out of proportion to a fairly civil online debate where, you know, they were arguing that this guy, you know, showed poor taste in wearing the shirt. And the interesting thing is that, as far as I know, the guy who wore the shirt didn't actually get any death threats or rape threats. Um, he made a public apology a couple days later, and that seemed to make people happy. And the online debate about the shirt continued, but people stopped really talking about him. That was Lauren Morello, whose feature is out this week. You can read it over at nature.com forward slash news. And special thanks to the quote voices handpicked from Nature's editorial team. Coming up in the news, gene editing to treat a little girl with leukaemia. But first, the research highlights. Here's Noah Baker. It's the perfect experiment for a five-year-old's birthday party, working out exactly how balloons burst. A team based in France found that as the stress on a balloon membrane increases, the balloon is more likely to burst open into lots of fragments. At lower stresses, balloons develop only a single crack. Similar popping principles might explain how cracks branch out during other, frankly more important processes, such as glass shattering or even when asteroids smash into each other. The paper is in Physical Review Letters, where there are some videos of the carefully controlled balloon study. Or plan your own experiments when Thanksgiving rolls around. Mars doesn't have much of an atmosphere, because it's being blasted off into space by powerful solar storms. The results are in from NASA's MAVEN spacecraft in orbit around Mars since last September. They suggest that a solar eruption in early 2015, which pelted the planet with protons and electrons, sped up the process of atmosphere loss by an order of magnitude. Not only that, but once pulled away from the planet, atmospheric particles aren't pulled back by Mars' gravity. They're lost to space permanently, leaving Mars a barren, naked world. The reports appear in Science and Geophysical Research Letters. One way to learn what ancient humans ate is by studying their leftovers. Not their table scraps, but trace chemical remains from meats, milk and even cheese clinging to ancient pot shards from Europe and the Near East. A new study adds another delicacy to the Neolithic diet. Ewan Calloway digs in. Some of the world's first farmers had a sweet tooth. A team at the University of Bristol has found telltale traces of beeswax on the insides of broken pots. They're pretty sure our ancestors were using honey. And it's a compelling piece of evidence for our relationship with bees, but not the first. At the British Museum here in London, researcher Helen Anderson studies African rock art, 
and finds images of bees and beehives all over. One of her favorites comes from a painting in a rock shelter in Tanzania. I love this image, which is um, a beautiful fine-lined painting um, painted in a deep red um, of a seated figure with what looks like a really elaborate uh, headdress or hairstyle or coiffure um, that's infilled with these beautiful curvilinear designs. And all around it um, are these tiny, tiny little bees. So how far back does uh, the human-bee relationship go? Well, we think probably up to 40,000 years. Um, We know that um, honey was being used as a food resource. Um, From Border Cave in South Africa, um, we have evidence that beeswax was being used. So we have a small um, object that um, is made up of beeswax, plant resin, and possibly egg that was wrapped in vegetable fibers. And this was possibly used um, for hafting. when if you wanted to haft a stone tool to a wood, to a piece of wood, to make a tool in itself, what you would do, you would need some kind of of glue or resin. Honey hunting also makes an appearance in Europe, in cave art, and now on crockery. To prove that ancient people used bee products, Melanie Rothay-Salk at the University of Bristol looked at thousands of pottery shards from all over Europe and the Near East, dating as far back as 9,000 years. What we do here at um, the University of Bristol is like examining uh, food residues in archaeological pots. And over the past 20 years, we've been looking at more than 6,000 potsherds, um, so pieces of pots, to see what people have been cooking in them. And on, on very rare, rare occasion, uh, we find beeswax in potsherds. Um, so these finds are very rare, but we realize that that by finding those beeswax um, biomarkers, well, fingerprint, um, we could actually map the chronological and spatial trends in uh, the bee product use in uh, in prehistory. So, how widespread was the use of bee products? Well, we've been we've been finding beeswax in lots of sherds across Europe. Um, so people were actually using hive product in uh, most part of Europe. But so the surprise was that actually that we didn't find beeswax in any of the pots that were at high latitudes. Um, by that, I mean in Scotland and in Finuscandia, which is Finland, Norway, and Sweden. Um, so we didn't find any beeswax here. And we, we actually analyzed lots of pots from these places and we found lots of lipids and we found lots of animal fats, but we've never found any beeswax from these high latitudes. Um, so we think here that we have actually the, the natural ecological limit of the honeybee at the time. From your analysis, can you get any indication about how people were using bee products like honey or beeswax? So, of course, we detect... Uh, the fingerprint of beeswax. Uh, so we can't detect honey because, well, it's full of sugars. Um, so it's very soluble and it doesn't survive through archaeological time. Um, so the finding beeswax can act for a proxy for honey. So it's possible that people were using honey, you know, it's um, for its culinary uses. Um, it's a very rare sweetener in, in prehistoric times. Helen Anderson at the British Museum says the discovery of beeswax in Neolithic pot shards complements the African bee imagery that she studies. 
I think that paper's fantastic for what it shows us about um, how bees are being used as a resource and how beeswax is being used and the fact that there are these parallels with what's going on in Europe and what's going on in Africa. And perhaps while the archaeology isn't there in Africa, um, we can start to make those comparisons. Um, that's that's what, what is happening in the Neolithic with the advent of agriculture um, and resources being exploited, that actually these relationships have been going on for, for thousands of years. It's a really useful examination uh, and analysis of, uh, of the pottery that enhances our own findings in the rock art. Our relationship with bees is more important than ever. They pollinate many of our food crops, and their honey is just as alluring as it must have been to ancient humans. So I asked Melanie Rofay-Salk if sifting through thousands and thousands of pot shards for signs of beeswax had made her reconsider the bee. Well, it, it does a little bit. I, I tend to be very careful when I buy honey, to be fair, and um, I try to buy local. I actually import it from, uh, from France, from my hometown, because I know the beekeeper. That was Melanie Ruffay-Salk ending the report from Ewan Calloway. You also heard from Helen Anderson at the British Museum. Finally, this week, as normal, it's the news chat. And on the line, I have Sarah Reardon. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Now, you've written a story this week about um, only the second time that a particular type of treatment has been used to try and treat a patient. Uh, Yeah, this is one of the first uses of gene editing in patients. We've been hearing a lot about gene editing in context of are we going to make genetically modified humans, but it's actually already in the clinic for much uh, less controversial reasons. So this is a case where a baby in London has been treated for leukemia, which is a disease of white blood cells. So what they did was they took um, T cells, uh, immune cells from a healthy donor, and they edited those cells so that they would do several things. They would um, be able to hide from chemotherapy drugs so they could continue treating the baby for any remaining cancer. They would also, were also treated so they wouldn't react with her body and so that they would um, fight the bad T cells that were in there already. It's still very early, but um, they treated her with this and she is now in remission. Um, And all, all other treatments had failed, so this could have saved her life. And this is, as you said, one of the first times that some, something like this, this gene editing kind of technique, has been used in the clinic. Um, tell us briefly about the, the first time. Uh, the first time was last fall. It was published. Um, there's a company from California that was treating HIV patients um, with something sort of similar. In this case, they took out the uh, patient's blood, the white blood cells again, and they edited the patient's own cells so that they would lack a protein that HIV uses to bind to and enter the cells. So HIV no longer has a way to get into these cells. Most of those patients are doing really well. About As, as of the time that the story came out last fall, there had been 12 patients treated. Um, six of them had been able to stop taking their antiretroviral drugs. And I talked with the company the other day, and they say they've now treated 70 people or more with this technique. Both of these trials with the HIV and then most recently with this baby who had has leukemia, they rely on taking out cells from the patient, fiddling with them, editing them in some ways and putting them back in. Is that the approach that people will continue to use to perhaps treat other diseases with this approach? Um, a lot of them, especially things that um, rely on something like uh, blood where you can take it out, put it back in, or immune cells where you can replace them. Um, But there's some other things that people might want to treat where the body isn't making something, 
suggesting that it should be. In, in these cases, the body was making something it shouldn't be, which are these cells that would either take up um, HIV or would um, cause leukemia. But in um, so, some other diseases, particularly a good example is uh, hemophilia, where the body has not been making a clotting protein um, that it should be. And so the same company, Sangamo, that did the HIV treatment, they are now hoping to get into clinical trials very soon for a way where they actually inject a virus that's carrying a gene for their gene editing protein um, and so in a way that it goes to the liver. And then the liver will start making huge amounts of this. So they've done that in monkeys successfully and have seen that the that it does work um, to make high levels of this uh, protein, and they are hoping to apply for regulatory permission to do it in the U.S. by the end of the year. Certainly scientists at the moment are very excited by the fundamentals of gene editing. CRISPR is a word that's on everyone's lips, or an acronym, I should say, that's on everyone's lips. These techniques work uh, slightly differently, involve slightly different ways of gene editing, but is this the first of a of perhaps a flood of techniques like this and even the dawn of CRISPR being used to treat human diseases? Well, we, we hope so. I mean, that, that's one of... It's been so... All of these techniques, been, especially CRISPR, have been so useful for just basic research, um, making animals that are um, better disease models and, and things like that. But, um, yeah, the ultimate goal of any of this is to get it into the clinic and start helping patients. And uh, we just heard last week that a company called Editas in um, Boston, they're hoping to get CRISPR into uh, clinical trials by 2017. And what they will be do- doing in that case is uh, treating a retina disease that causes blindness. And in that case, again, they'll be injecting a virus with the CRISPR gene right into the person's retina. Sarah Reardon, thank you very much. And you can be sure that here at Nature, we're keeping an eye on CRISPR, on talons, and on all the other gene editing techniques making such an impression. Read Sarah's piece at nature.com news. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. 